Uh, Genesis chapter chapter 1, um, verses 1 to 2, uh, 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vaults from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, uh, the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in its own image. In the light of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of light in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. 
God saw all that he has made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. Uh, So now we're going to be reading from Psalm chapter 33, verses 6 to 9. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Well, it's wonderful to be with you again and to share God's word with you. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Lord, we pray today that you might enlighten us as we read, as we think, as we talk together about this part of your word. And we pray that having understood, we might obey and we might live out all that you have to say to us today. Amen. Genesis was written to a world that was filled with fear. The ancient world was a world that was full of gods, different gods, prosperity gods and fertility gods, gods of love and sex, and each god kind of ruled a different part of your life. And you were at the mercy of the gods' often capricious whims. Uh, You never knew quite which one you had to worship, or which one you had to honour, or which one you had to fear. But a lot hung on your decision. The wrong choice and your crops wouldn't grow, or your child might die, or you might not find rest after death. It was a world of fear. Fear of the darkness. Fear of what threatened to take away all meaning, and all hope, and all purpose. And each set of gods had their own story of how the world was created and therefore what you needed to do in order to find your place and please the gods. Now, of course, we look at the ancient world as simple and primitive, even as superstitious. We no longer worship Zeus or Marduk or a rainbow serpent, but we still search for gods to hold back the darkness and hold back the meaninglessness. We still live in a world full of fear. Our gods are material now, or social or ideological. It's the wealth that we covet. It's the standing that we aspire to. We still give our allegiance now to money or to career or to relationships or to psychology or to politics, all with the hope that somehow they might save us from meaninglessness and hopelessness. We may not worship the ancient gods anymore, but we certainly worship what they stood for. Not the God of prosperity, just prosperity. Not the gods of love and sex, but just love and sex. Perhaps we aren't as different from the ancients as we might think that we are. Underneath it all is still the same fear. And into a world of fear, both ancient and modern, comes the words of Genesis. The story of the beginning 
and the beginning of the story. The story of a God who brings light to darkness. The story of a God who brings order to chaos and brings meaning and hope and purpose in a world of fear. And yet the temptation with a book like Genesis is to interrupt the story that God is telling us with our questions. Uh, You know, when was this beginning that God is talking about? And did it really take six days? And how do the dinosaurs kind of fit into all of this? And where did Cain find his wife? And there's, there's question after question after question that we all have when we read through this part of the Bible. You get the idea. And I want to say there's nothing wrong with questions. Questions are okay. It's good to ask questions. The Lord Jesus encourages his followers to ask questions. It's just that often our questions are not always the story that God is telling us. And even if our intentions are good, and let me say, often our intentions are. Often we ask our questions about Genesis because, well, we want to make Genesis palatable to our our non-Christian friends and family. We want to understand so that we might explain it to them. That's a good reason. But in the process of asking our questions, we can be guilty of interrupting God and the story that He wants us to hear. And so as we kind of work our way through Genesis, as we spend uh, this next seven weeks or so uh, going all the way through to Genesis chapter 4, I want us to listen to the story that God is telling us. Hear what He has to say before we ask our questions. Afterwards we can still ask them and we'll get chances to ask them. But I want us to listen to God first. So I've got three things that I want to talk about today. They're all there on the outline that you got as you came in. I want to talk about uh, how in the beginning God said, God separated and God saw. So firstly then, God said. Uh, Perhaps what's most striking about what God created was the way that God created it. God created by His Word. In the beginning was God and God spoke And then all creation sprang at once into being. Creation itself is approximately 185 words. I counted them. (laughs) And I think that, you know, by contrast, I've already spoken to you over 600 words this evening. Uh, God could have created three universes in just the words that I've used to talk to you tonight. And I think that what we're meant to understand is that for God, creation was easy. It took him no more effort than it would take you or I to speak just a few sentences, maybe a paragraph or two in whole, and God had himself a universe. And there is nothing in that universe that does not owe its existence to God. There is no force, no substance, no energy, no idea, no place that does not owe its reality to God's creative word. Even if you just cast your, your eye down the passage, in light, uh, God creates light in verse 3, a sea and sky in verse 6, land in verse 9, vegetation in verse 11, stars and sun and moon in verse 14, fish and birds in verse 20, animals in verse 24, humans in verse 26. There is nothing that exists that God did not create and create simply by His Word. By God's Word, the interaction of every subatomic particle 
was determined. By God's word, the sequence of every combination of DNA was defined, creating Earth's estimated 8.7 million species of life. By God's word, the estimated 70 sextillion stars were ignited. That's a seven with 22 zeros after it. And in fact, our universe is so large that it would take light 187 billion years to cross from one side to the other. And God created all of it by his word. And of course, that's just what we know of our universe, isn't it? Every frontier of new discovery has shown humanity that actually our universe is far bigger and far more complicated than we had ever imagined. And I think it a very safe assumption that that's exactly the way that God intended it. So that no matter how great, no matter how sophisticated, no matter how wise humanity becomes, and we are intelligent and sophisticated, we have achieved so much, we have come so far, and yet... Compared to the universe in which we live, we still feel small. And we still feel small compared to the one who spoke it all into being. And these are not magical words that God speaks. The power is not in the words themselves. The power is, of course, in the one who spoke them. The act of creation is an act of obedience to the word of the creator. God had but to speak and things come into reality so that they might obey him. Even uncreated things obey the word of God. And in this, God's word is so different to our words. Our words, well, at best, they describe reality. When we speak, we speak of what we see or or what we hear or, or how we feel. Our words describe reality and do so at best imperfectly, but by contrast, God's word defines reality. God's word shapes reality. And so I think at this point in the story, God is asking us a question. He's asking, whose word defines your reality? Whose word defines your reality? Is it the word of your teachers? The word of your parents? The words of your boss or your spouse or your friends or even your children? Their words are not unimportant. And yet it's so easy for their words to become our whole reality rather than the words of the one who created our reality. And who's created us also. Another way to put it is this. Whose word in your life is law and whose word is advice? Because I think it's very easy for us to take God's word as advice, as good advice. And yet it's very easy for someone else's word, especially for our own word, to be the law of our life. And yet surely it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Surely the word of he who spoke our reality into being should be the law of our life and our word at best just advice. Because in the beginning God spoke 
and all things came to be. But God didn't just speak, he also separates, he makes distinctions. Have a look at day four, sorry, day, sorry have a look at verse four, day one, would you for a moment? Because there God separates light from darkness. There was one thing, the darkness, and then now by the word of God, there are two things, there is light and darkness, there is day and night. Uh, day two is similar. Uh, he, he, he separates the, uh, the sky from the sea. Uh, the movement from nothingness to increasing complexity just goes on and on and on. And our world becomes more com- complicated. Uh, it becomes more sophisticated with each passing day. In day three, the word separated is not used, but he separates the lands from the waters. On each occasion, there was one thing, and then after God speaks, there is more than one thing. Uh, On day four, there's a a kind of explosion. Uh, God creates the various kinds of plants according to their kinds. And the animals, and the birds, and the fish. He creates more and more diversity. He creates more and more complexity as each day passes. God's creative act involves elaborating and distinguishing and drawing the creation out into greater and greater wonder and beauty and complexity. So much so that to lose that diversity feels inherently wrong. It feels like an act of uncreation. To destroy a a whole species or a, a whole ecosystem through our greed or our neglect is deeply wrong. And many understand this even without any belief in God and they are right. It's an undoing of creation to destroy the diversity of what God has made. And yet it is just as wrong to deliberately erase the separations and the distinctions that God has made. And so in the weeks to come we will speak of the distinction between man and woman that God has made. We will speak of the distinct relationship of marriage that God has made. And these are God-created separations, God-created distinctions that are very much under threat in our world from those who refuse to let God's Word define their reality. But within these distinctions and these separations that God has made, there is a very clear order and there is even a very clear hierarchy in all that God has made. I think you see it most clearly in the days. The the creative work of God is separated into these six days and yet there is a very clear pattern to the days uh, with God resting on the the seventh day. I even made you a table uh, just so that you could fill it in and feel like that you were in a a proper lecture theatre, hearing a a, a proper lecture. Uh, But on days one to three, God creates kingdoms, different realms. And then on days four to six, God creates the kings to rule over those kingdoms. So on day one, God creates the kingdom of of night and the kingdom of day, the kingdoms of light and darkness. And then on day four, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars and we're told explicitly to rule over the day and the night. On day two, God creates the kingdom of the sky and sea. And on day five, God creates the birds to rule over the sky and the fish to rule over the sea. 
On day three, God creates the kingdom of the dry land and he creates the vegetation as well. And on day six, God creates the animals that walk along the ground so that they might rule over the dry land and that they might eat the vegetation and be sustained. But on day six, God also creates something else. God also creates humanity. He creates man, he creates them male and female. And that's a real break, that's a, a, it deviates from the very careful pattern of the other six days. Because humanity is created not just to rule over the land, but humanity is created actually to rule over everything. Humanity is created to be a ruler of rulers, a king of kings. As it says in verse 26, to rule over the fish and the birds over all of the livestock and the wild animals, over all of creation. Now here is a creation that is ordered, that is complex, that even has a hierarchy. And it's testimony to the God who has created it. A God who is himself ordered and regular and faithful and continual. And it's interesting, when you think about this, you begin to realise, of course, that even though science cannot explain Christianity... Christianity can explain science. Uh, The whole basis of modern science actually comes out of a biblical view of God's order. Science only works because we can expect something to happen in exactly the same way, under exactly the same conditions. But why can we expect that? Why is that true? And the answer is because that's exactly the way that God made our universe. It's because He is a God of order. He made it exactly that way, predictable, orderly and regular. Not a world full of gods that you had to placate, that you had to fear, but a world with one God so that we might seek Him and that we might know Him who made it all. We have no need to to fear or to demonise science. Science is just people studying what God has made. We must stop them when they try and make science say more than it can say. But we have no need to fear it. But all of this does prompt a second question that God's Word asks us. And that is, do you know the goodness of God's order? Do you know the rightness of God's order? For when we ask ourselves that first question, whose Word defines your reality... It's very easy to answer that. Well, yes, of course it's God. Of course God defines my reality. Of of course I obey Him and and I seek to to live in accordance with His words. It's very easy to say that, but to do so reluctantly. To do so kind of under duress. To say, yes, God's Word can define my reality, but really, you know, I I don't want it to. It's It's a burden. God's glory is a hardship on my life. Yes, God can tell me what to do, but I wish that all that He told me wasn't kind of somehow, don't do this and and don't do that and above all, don't have too much fun. You know, I wish it was just kind of a little bit easier. But a proper understanding of God's order leads us to rejoice in the goodness of God's Word to us. The goodness of God's world and the way that He has made it. Things in our world have a purpose. They are made to work in a certain way. They're made to work God's way. And when you do things God's way, then it's fantastic, it's wonderful. But when you do them our way, if you do them in a way other than God's way, 
then actually they are tremendously dangerous and damaging. It's true of things like electricity. Electricity is wonderful. I cannot live without my my heating, without my lights, I can't live without my smartphone, I, I can't live without my... I'm a city boy. I have no understanding of where food comes from. I assume it just comes from, from Woolworths. Uh, that's where I buy. You know, I, I need electricity. I need all of these, these modern and these wonderful things that we have. You, you know, used in the right way, electricity is wonderful. But used in the wrong way, well, we know it's terribly dangerous. Uh, that's why we, we teach kids not to stick things in PowerPoints. Uh, we know it's dangerous. But it's not just simple things like electricity as well. It's other things as well. God created sex and God created sex to work in a certain way, to work within the relationship that we call marriage, a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And when you do sex in that way, when you do sex God's way, it is wonderful, it is fantastic. But when you do it a different way, other than the way that God intended it to be done, then it kills you. Maybe not physically, but certainly emotionally and spiritually and relationally. When God gives us a command, He is not trying to spoil our fun. When God gives us a command, He's trying to teach us who we are and what we are. This is a human being. This is the way they work. This is the way that I made them. These are the manufacturer's specifications. This is how they can get the best out of life. And we tinker with that to our peril and far too often to our pain. We need to know the goodness of God's order and rejoice in letting God's word define our reality because God said and God separated but last of all God also did something else God also saw at the end of each day you would have noticed that God evaluates his work like a master craftsman he he steps back and he looks at all at all that he has done that day and he says it is good the very observant amongst you will of course notice that there are two exceptions to this On day six, actually, everything was very good. That was a good day, day six, because that was the day when he created us, when he created those who are in his image, as we'll talk about next week. The other exception is day two, which you might not have noticed. Day two, for some reason, passes without comment. And I have absolutely no idea why. And nor nor do any of the commentators that I I, I managed to read, although if this was the the traditional Hebrew pattern of days, and I think that's a safe assumption, then day two would have been Monday, and I guess God doesn't like Monday. Uh, Four years at Bible college, 12 years of public ministry, and that is seriously the best that I have to offer you about that tonight. But what does it mean when God says that this that he has created is good? At one level, it just means that everything is as God intended it to be. Everything is as God wanted it to be. Uh, does it mean, however, that everything is perfect? Well, we do like to use that word about what God made back here in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, does it mean that this, word is, this, this world is, is complete? 
It certainly was beautiful. It certainly was wonderful. It certainly was wholesome and joyous. It certainly was everything that God intended it to be. But I do not think that it was perfect. And I do not think that it was complete. No, I think that when God sees and sees it is good, it means that it is fit for his purpose. The language of good and of evil is the language of purpose, as we talked about last week. And so this is a good beginning to the story, but it's not the end. The creation is itself incomplete, deliberately so. Uh, Now, how can I I say something like this? Well, a few reasons I've got for you. Uh, Firstly, the creation is unfilled and untamed. And the command to humanity is to fill the earth and to subdue it precisely because it is unfilled and untamed. Uh, God didn't create a world that was as pristine as a golf course. God created a wild frontier. And into that wild frontier, he planted a garden that was a carefully manicured paradise. And into that garden, he placed the first man and the first woman. And then he almost says to this first man and this first woman, now go on, go make the rest of the world like this garden. Go make it beautiful, go make it wonderful, go make it a place where human beings can live and flourish and grow and enjoy. Fill the earth and subdue it. There is real work for humanity to do in this new creation. Creation work, work like God, work in the image of God. Creation is like an an unfinished project and now God will hand the completion of that project over to those who are made in his image. It's almost like a parent getting a child ready for a school assignment. Uh, The father has come and given us all the materials that we need, shown us the plan, told us what we're to do. And now he steps back and he says, go on, you finish it off, as he watches with paternal pride. But secondly, I don't think that we can call this creation perfect. Because if we know the rest of the story, we know that somewhere in this garden lurks a serpent. God did not create a world in which the serpent had been defeated and ruled over. There is still in this creation the darkness. The darkness has held at bay now. It's ruled over by the sun and the moon and the stars, but night will come. Very quickly we will get to Genesis chapter 3. Soon enough this new humanity will flee from the protective shelter of God's world word and be cast into the darkness. No, this is a beginning and it's a good beginning, but it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not two people in a garden. The end of the story is a city with countless people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. And at the very other end of the Bible, the Apostle John glimpsed the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21 and he described it like this. He said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. 
On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, at the end, John saw a city. A city with no night. A city with no serpent. A city with no sin. A city with no pain. A city with no death. John glimpsed the end of the story and he saw the light of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. John glimpsed the end of the story and we long for it. But Genesis chapter 1 is just the beginning. God said, God separated, God saw. A good world, an ordered world, a right and fit beginning for the story that God would tell and the story that God has invited in Jesus Christ for us to be part of. The story that he wants us to listen to. Now, do you want to interrupt? Do you want to know about the six days? No one ever really says no to that when I ask that question. It is a controversial issue amongst Christians. Did God create in six days, in, in six literal 24-hour periods? Or was it something other way, some other way that, that God created things? Uh, and the answer is very simple, I think. Uh, the truth is, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but let me tell you my story. I, I was uh, raised by my mum and dad, who are, who are Christians, and, and my dad is a scientist. And so I was raised uh, never thinking or, or never imagining, and I still don't think there is any conflict at all between science and Christianity. Uh, and, and so I was raised thinking that, no, the, the six days, these six days that are talked about in Genesis chapter 1 are, are not six literal 24-hour periods, but uh, that something else was going on. But as I, I grew older, I began to, to become dissatisfied with that answer. I began to realise that actually that argument began not with the Word of God, but actually began with my understanding of science. And that actually I wasn't letting God's Word define my reality. And so I grew dissatisfied with that view and I became, for a time, I became a very convinced and a reasonably vocal six-day creationist, saying that, no, it must have been six literal 24-hour periods. But then God showed me something else very important. Come with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And if you have an NIV in front of you, it goes something like this. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Uh, but if you have a different translation in front of you, uh, if you have something like the ESV in front of you, it will say something quite different. If you have a Holman in front of you, it will have a, a footnote down the bottom that says something quite different. Uh, because literally, actually, the verse perhaps should read something like this. It should read, This is the account of the heavens and the earth on the day they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates, it says, 
in six days. But in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, it says that God created in one day, one singular day. And so which is it? Is it six days or is it one day? And the answer is, I don't know. Could God have created in six days? Yes, of course he could. Could God have created in one day? Well, yes, he could have done that as well. Could God have created over millions of years of evolution via his guiding hand? Could God have created an old earth? Well, the answer to all of these questions has to be God, because a God who can but speak and creation springs at once into reality, well, that's a God who can do anything that he wants. All I know is that we need to be very careful about the way that we read the word day in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but not because of science, but because of the book of Genesis, because of the way that Genesis uses the word day. What I am certain of is that no brother or sister in Christ deserves to be looked down upon or judged based on their understanding of these six days. There's enough room in scriptures to account for a range of views and we can happily stand together as brothers and sisters in Christ united by the Lord Jesus even if we disagree about this. And I will happily stand in the queue with all of you in heaven, waiting for a more definitive answer from God. But I keep making that promise to everyone, so you might kind of have to to, to wait for your turn on, on, on that one. But for now, I'm not sure that God does give us a definitive answer. And then, therefore, I'm not sure that we do need to know. But what we do need to know is the story that God tells us. The story of a God who creates and creates by His Word. Six-day creation is just one of the many questions we will have throughout this series in the book of Genesis. And God will not answer all of our questions. But God will keep asking us His questions. And we need to be ready to give Him the answers that He demands from us. And we need to be the one who is ready to let His Word, on His terms, define our reality. And we need to do so with joy and with thankfulness. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the story that You are telling us. And even though, Lord, we have ourselves many questions, and even though those questions are, in their own ways, important, Lord, help us to realise that they are much less important than the story that you are telling us and much less important than the questions that you are asking us. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to listen to you. Help our lives to be defined by you and by your word. And may we do that with joy And with thankfulness, may we count it an enormous privilege that we can listen to you and have your word define our reality. And we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour.